starting a new series this morning. Uh, And so I'm gonna start today in Luke chapter one, verses 46 through 55. Uh, We're starting this year with a series on worship. Uh, We have a discipleship process that we believe in at First Baptist Uh, as a staff. We feel like what we offer you as a church what we offer you as you grow in Christ. We can't, we can't do the growth for you. We can't serve the Lord for you. But here's what we can offer you. We can offer you worship. You connect with God in worship. We can offer you the chance to grow in Christ-like qualities, like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's what happens in life groups. As you, as you hear the word taught, as you spend time with one another and, and hold one another accountable and minister to each other, you're growing in those Christ-like qualities. And then we give you opportunities to reach others with his love. So that's what That's what transforming relationships are. That's what ministries you participate in are. When you serve someone else, you are also growing into the image of Christ, connecting, growing, and reaching. So this first series is going to be about that connecting part. Because when we hear the word worship, we immediately think of what we're doing right now, this thing we do on Sunday mornings. And let's be clear, the Bible is is very direct in saying if you're not there on Sundays, if you're not gathering with God's people, you're not serving the Lord the way you should. There's no such thing as the Lone Ranger Christian. You need that time together with God's people. But that's not all that worship is. You can worship God anytime during the week, whenever you connect with Him. Whenever your heart is focused on on growing to know Him better, on loving Him more, on serving Him more effectively, on on, uh, being more aware of His presence, that's worship. Whether you're chopping wood in the backyard or driving to work or taking a shower or, or, or sitting in a worship service or reading your Bible in your study at home. So some of you would probably say, I'm not good at worship. That's just, that just doesn't come naturally to me. I, I try, but when I open my Bible, I, I, just, I get distracted. I, I set a schedule and I'm going to spend time with God tomorrow at this time. Well, something always comes up that keeps me from doing it. When I come to church, my mind wanders. As soon, Jeff, as soon as you get up there to preach, my mind goes straight out the door. I understand that. And if that's you, just understand you're not alone. There's a lot of Christians that feel that way. And I would say to you that you don't have a worship problem. Some of you would probably say, well, it's because I'm not very musical or uh, because I'm just not really emotional. Some people get into it and they're raising their hands and they're closing their eyes and they're weeping and that's just not me. It's not that. That's not your problem. What we have is a vision problem. If you're not, if you're not worshiping effectively and often, it's your vision that's the problem. And what I mean by that is this. We all worship something. And we have no problem focusing our attention on something. Maybe it's somebody you're in love with. Maybe it's uh, a member of your family or or members of your family who you've invested in. Maybe it's your hobby. Maybe it's your your work. Maybe it's your dreams for the future. Or maybe it's your ideology, the things you believe in in the world. But there is some subject that you can't stop reading about, can't stop talking about, that anytime that subject comes up or anytime you're around that person, you are fixated on them. So my point is, None of those things are necessarily bad, but if we really begin to see the Lord the way we see those other things, if we really begin to catch a, catch a glimpse of how good He is, we can't help but worship. What happens in the Bible whenever anybody, whether they're a king or a peasant, whether they're old or young, whether they're a devout person or, or someone who doesn't even know God, when that person sees God, what happens? Every single time, they fall on their knees. They fall on their face. They cry out to God. They worship Him. 
So the point of this series is that you and I would see God a little more clearly, that we would know him better, and that we would begin to worship him in our hearts because that's what we are made for. That's the other thing I want to tell you before I really get into this. You come into the new year with probably, if you're like me, all kinds of dreams and hopes. And I I hope you do learn that new language, or I hope you do get out of debt, or I hope you do lose those few pounds, or whatever your plans are. But if you don't learn to worship God, the year will not be full. Because that's what you were made for. That's what you were made to do, is to connect with God, to worship Him. That's what you'll be doing for all eternity if you're God's child. So now is the time. This series specifically is about all the doxologies in Scripture. Now, doxology is a fancy word, but it's a a word from Greek. The word doxa in Greek is glory, and logos means word. So doxology literally means glory words, words of glory. And and it's anytime, if you've ever noticed this, it's striking. In the Bible, when a character just spontaneously bursts out into praise, sometimes it's Paul, he's in the middle of a thought. In the Bible, he's writing a letter to another church and he just can't help himself. He just gets caught up and starts writing words of praise. Or or as as we see today, a young woman named Mary just spouts out this, this song out of nowhere of glory to God. So when people just, they don't have any agenda, they're not trying to impress anyone, they're not asking God to help them, they're just saying, I wanna tell you how good God is. That's a doxology. And what we're going to do in this series is look at different doxologies because these are people who I think you and I can, can agree, they know God better than we do. They're more aware of how good he is. We're going to learn from them what they know. And once we see that, I think we will learn to worship and connect with him better. So that first one, as I said, is from Mary. It's called the Magnificat. Now, Mary didn't call it that. That's a word from Latin, a language Mary didn't speak. It's the Latin word for magnify. And you'll see why in just a moment if you don't already know this story. The, the, the background is Mary has walked nine days from Nazareth to Ein Karem up north of Jerusalem where her cousin Elizabeth lives. Why? Because Mary's just found out she's pregnant and she wants to go to the one person on earth who probably will understand because Elizabeth, her, her, her cousin who's always been barren, who's never been able to have children and who is at an advanced age is now unexpectedly pregnant herself. And when she walks through the door, this is amazing. Elizabeth doesn't know Mary's pregnant until the moment she hears her voice. And the baby inside her womb, by the way, John the Baptist, leaps inside of her because he's full of the Holy Spirit. By the way, side note, if you've ever had a baby, that baby was not full of the Holy Spirit, I can promise you. Mine weren't. I I, I can tell you that. And I wasn't as a child. John leaps in his womb because he recognizes the voice of his Savior's mother. And in fact, Elizabeth says, he calls, she calls her the mother of my Lord. Blessed are you, the mother of my Lord. And hearing that, Mary is so full of joy, probably because she's finally seen someone who understands, who knows. And she speaks these words. These words that I believe, this is just my opinion, she's been noodling over in her head for those nine days of walking down those dusty roads up north or down south towards Ein Karem. And she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. 
and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now this is a doxology. It's a statement of how great God is, but great in some ways we don't usually think of. She starts it in a way that's probably not surprising. She starts it by saying, I'm so glad that the Lord notices someone as lowly as me. It reminds me of the story of Hagar, the the slave girl of Abraham and Sarah back in the book of Genesis, Genesis 15, I believe. And, And Hagar can't believe when she's been exiled from her master and mistress and she thinks she's going to starve to death in the wilderness and then God shows up there to to greet her and she gives him a new name. She said, you are the God who sees, that you would see someone as lowly as me. And that's what Mary says here. And that's an amazing thing. He sees you and he sees me and he knows us, knows the number of the hairs on our head. And she closes the song in a way that's a lot like the Psalms where she just basically says, Thank you, Lord, for being so good to your people. We could just sit here and and spend all day recounting the ways you've been good to us. We would be nothing without you. But it's the middle part of the song that is surprising because it's in the middle part of this song that this junior high age girl turns into a prophet. She, She literally declares war on certain things in this world, certain forces. Uh, you, You could say three bullies that dominate the people of this world, that dominate us, that, that steer us away from the path of truth and, and into the path of evil, that, that damage our lives. And she says, God has sent his son to destroy these things, to put these things in their place so that you and I could be free. What are these three things that she says God is opposed to? Number one is pride. God is opposed to pride. She says in verse 51, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has scattered the proud. Now, we use the term pride in a lot of different ways today, some of them positive. When you were a kid, if you're like me, you, you heard from your parents, from your teachers, take pride in your work. Take pride in your appearance. Take pride in your family, in your name. And yet, when you read the Scriptures, you see that pride, the way the Scriptures use that word, is a very dangerous thing. In fact, you might, you might say it's the most dangerous thing on earth. You might say that's the root of all sin. And so I need to make clear what I mean when I say that, because when we hear pride in a negative sense, we think of arrogance. We think of a boastful person, a rock star strutting on the stage, or an athlete standing in the end zone, or or rounding the bases, holding up his arms to say, I've done this. Look at me. We think of a wealthy person on their private island who won't deign to touch the common folk. We think of arrogance and, and elitism and conceitedness. And all of us would look at ourselves and say, well, I'm not like that. I'm not that way at all. And yet we have a struggle with pride too. I'm not going to ask you what your struggle for pride, uh, if you struggle with pride. I'm going to say each of us has our own struggle with pride. Because here's what pride is. Uh, James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now that's a truth that's so important to God. He put it in three different books of the Bible. It's in Proverbs and 1 Peter, as well as James. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So the opposite of pride is not low self-esteem. The opposite of pride is humility. And what is humility? Humility is that blessed ability to just forget about yourself. You're not worried about yourself. You're not concerned with yourself. You're thinking about others. You're happy to talk about others. You're happy to give them the spotlight. 
Pride is the opposite of that. Pride is a fixation on yourself. So pride is not just boasting. Pride is also complaining. You ever complain? You ever whine? You ever grumble? You ever get upset when the food that you order isn't the food that came out and you gripe at this poor little waitress as if it's her fault? You ever get upset with your boss? You ever, you ever complain about your spouse? You ever complain about your church? Nah, you'd never do that. And yet when we do, what are we saying? We're saying, my preferences matter more. What I want is what's important. Now, I'm not saying you can't ever say anything negative about your church. Sometimes negative things need to be said when we're headed in a negative direction, when we're not serving the Lord correctly, when, when people are acting in unchristlike ways. Truth needs to be spoken. But when it's as simple as, that guy sat in my pew. I don't like that song. I think it was too cold. Well, I think it was too hot. Well, I think the sermon went too long. Well, I didn't understand anything he said. It's about us. Do you ever, do you ever have a hard time walking away from an argument? That's another sign of pride. You always have to have that last word. You always have to feel like you've won. You literally can't, even a stranger can say something that you disagree with and you feel like you must correct them because your opinions matter that much because you must be right. That's a sign of pride. Even self-pity is a sign of pride. We don't think about it that way. But what do we do when we're pitying ourselves? We're focusing on us and our lowly state in the world and oh, how bad life is and life's not fair and, and, and I deserve better than this. We become the center of our own little universe. There's a very perverse pleasure to self-pity. That's why it's so hard to get out of it once you've gotten into it. Jesus came to destroy pride. Over and over and over again, he taught his disciples, if you want to be great, you put yourself last and others first. If you want to be great, don't insist on lofty titles, don't insist on perks of your position, but instead focus on serving the lowest of the low. He constantly criticized the religious elites, not because of their devotion to the scriptures, because they were, they were devout. They were truly devout. They were doctrinally correct. They were morally circumspect, but they were prideful and self-righteous, and he called them out on that. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside. Inside, you're full of pride. Inside, you're full of arrogance. Inside, you're full of self-centeredness. Remember the parable he taught about the Pharisee and the tax collector worshiping side by side in the temple? And the Pharisee prays and says, Lord, I thank you that you've not made me like other men, especially this tax collector here. And the Pharisee prays, and the tax collector prays, oh Lord, just have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that tax collector went away justified before God. And think about what he's saying. A Pharisee, we hear that term and we think negative, but Pharisees were people who devoted their lives to studying God's word and to obeying it. You and I could have followed the average Pharisee 24-7, 365. We never would have seen them sin once. And yet Jesus said they weren't justified before God because it was all about themselves. They were prideful. Jesus' point is, doesn't matter. You may, have, you may have the right beliefs. You may be doing the right rituals. You may be following the right commandments. But if your religion isn't making you more humble, you need to change your religion. And I need for us to ask ourselves the question, are we becoming more humble? 
Are we less likely to complain now than we used to be? Are we less likely to insist on our own way? Are we less likely to insist that our way is right? Are we less likely to focus on ourselves and feel sorry for ourselves and and all those other signs of pride than we used to be? Because if not, we need a new vision of God, the God who came to destroy pride and cast down the prideful in the thoughts of their hearts. Second thing that Mary declares war on on behalf of God is power. She says in verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. And Mary there is just simply acknowledging God's the one who holds the kings and the presidents and the, and the dictators and the premiers of the world in his hands. I find it interesting. Billy Graham, uh, I would say, I think most of you would agree, most influential, important Christian of the last hundred years, certainly of the 20th century, someone I deeply admire. Late in his life, a reporter asked him, Dr. Graham, if you could go back and change one thing about your life, what would you change? He said, I would have steered clear of politics, which is an interesting thing for Billy Graham to say, because you probably know, if you know anything about him, one of the remarkable things about him, not only did he preach the gospel to millions of people the world over, he also had a personal relationship with and prayed with every president of the United States from Harry Truman to Barack Obama. That's remarkable. And I know that growing up and and all through my life, whenever you would watch TV and you would see on the news that Billy Graham has met with with George Bush, with Bill Clinton, with Jimmy Carter, with Ronald Reagan, with whoever, you always felt this sense of excitement that, hey, he kind of represents us. And that, that means that we have a foothold there. But Billy Graham would also say that he could look back and see how down through the years, some of those presidents used him to prop up their own agenda. And in one particular case, he would, he would admit that he got too close to the seat of power and did and said some things that compromised his integrity as a man of God. And because that president recorded everything, I think you know who I'm talking about, it came out. What is spoken behind closed doors gets shouted from the rooftops. Billy Graham, a man I deeply admire, had to apologize for things he'd said 30, 40 years before. So you think about the relationship Jesus had with earthly rulers, best exemplified when he stood before Pontius Pilate on the day of his death. Here's a man who represents the Roman Empire, the most powerful human force on earth, most powerful human force the world had ever seen. And Jesus gave him no time, gave him no deference, treated him like he would any other human. And Pilate was astonished. He said, don't you know that I have power to put you to death? Or to release you. Jesus said, you have no power over me except what God has given you. See, that's the problem with earthly power. It's not that earthly power is a bad thing. Somebody has to rule. Someone has to be in charge. And, and we want it to be a good person. We want, it, uh, we want God's people to go into uh, the, the world of, of, of political power and, and, and wield that power well. That, that's a good thing. The problem is when we're willing to do whatever we have to do to maintain that power. See, what what Billy Graham said as he gave his apology for those words he spoke all those years before was, I was in that room with all those people who were saying these things and I wanted to fit in. That's such a human concern. We all identify. I think what it comes down to is we like to feel like we have a seat in the throne. 
We, we like to feel like we have a seat in the court of the king, and so we're willing to compromise what we know is right sometimes to maintain that or to gain that. Again, the problem is not power. The problem is what are you willing to do with that power? What are you willing to do to get that power? And so often, the people who sit in the seat of power are all about themselves and not about serving the people and not about doing what is right. And we as God's people, instead of calling them out, we feed into their power because it benefits us. What it comes down to is this. Next year, obviously, is an election year. So we've got a long time to think about this. Let's pray that between now and, and November 2024, that God's people would, would learn that our hope is not in any human being. Yes, let's vote. Let, yes, let's pray. Yes, let's support the right side. But let's remember our hope is not in who wins or loses in November 2024. Our hope is in the renewal of our nation through the Holy Spirit of God. That's it. And if you're not praying for that renewal, praying for that revival to fall, by the way, revival starts in the household of God. It starts with us. If you're not praying for that to happen with us and with every other church that preaches in the name of Jesus, it's time to start. You've got a little less than two years to, to really start praying that way. Let's do it. Let's, let's keep that at the forefront. He's brought down the rulers from their thrones. There's a third thing that that Jesus was sent to declare war upon, and that is greed. As Mary says, he has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. See, again, like pride, we misplace the idea of greed. I, I don't know that any of us here would say, well, yeah, I've got a problem with greed, because we think of greed as a guy in an, an Italian suit whose car costs more than my house, who destroys companies and puts people out of work so he can buy more houses in other parts of the world. That's greed to us. And yet, greed is simply a hunger for more, an insatiable hunger for more. It's interesting, psychologists did a study a few years ago. We wanted to find out, is there a difference between the way poor people and rich people and, and middle-class middle people uh, look at their money? And so he interviewed people who made 30000 a year. He interviewed people who brought in multiple millions per year and everybody in between. And what he found out was there was a remarkable consistency. Everybody, no matter their income level, wants more. And, and they want a consistent amount more. They want the equivalent of about 10% more. So the guy making $30,000 a year would say, yeah, if I just, if I just got a $3,000 raise this next year, I think I'd be happy. But what happens? He gets that $3,000 raise, praise God. All of a sudden, his bills aren't quite as stressful anymore. All of a sudden, maybe he's able to buy his child a Christmas gift that's not from Dollar General, right? That's a little bit nicer. Maybe, maybe once in a while, they're able to eat at McDonald's. You know, things are a little easier. And then that becomes their new normal. And suddenly it's like, well, why can't I buy my kids gifts at, uh, you know, at the really nice stores? And why can't we eat at, at uh, you know, Sawgrass or, or Texas Roadhouse or, you know, someplace a little so where you actually sit down with a waiter? Why can't we have a vacation that's not just going to see my parents? We can never be happy with what we have, and that is the greed within us. I want you to note, uh, by the way, I, I, I need to establish this for a moment. Some of you are sitting there saying, well, you know, I, I do want to improve my lot in life. Is that wrong? The Bible 
talks about financial rewards in such a way that makes you think it's not wrong if you make 30,000 to say it'd be nice to make 35. It'd be nice someday to make 60. That's not a bad uh, desire. That's not a bad motivation. The, the problem comes when you say, I cannot be happy until I make that greater amount. Or if you already make that greater amount, greed is when you say, if I ever lose this lifestyle, I would rather die. That's greed. When you can't be happy without attaining those goals. Now note how often Jesus talked about greed. By the way, to a group of people who are overwhelmingly poor. They didn't make the equivalent of 30000 They made maybe a dollar a day the equivalent of back then. And yet he's saying things like this to them. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. He told them the story of the rich fool, the man whose, whose crops came in in, in a spectacular bumper crop, and he put them all in barns and said, I, I can just take my ease now. And then he died that night, and Jesus said, you fool, because you thought that your life consisted in the amount of money you could make, the amount of property you could attain. See, Jesus was clear. Greed will bankrupt your soul. Paul was clear that greed is idolatry. You are worshiping a false god when you say, I must make this, I must buy that, I must have this experience, or else I cannot be happy. And there's only one cure. Remember, where your treasure is, though your heart will be also. If you spend all your money on yourself, you're going to worship yourself. If you spend all your money on your kids, you're going to worship your kids. If you spend all your money on your house, on your car, on your hobby, that's what you will worship. But if you begin to give your wealth away, you'll love other people. You begin, to, you, you begin to support the work of God with your finances. You will begin to love God and His work more. That's the cure for generosity. That's the cure for greed, that is, and it's generosity. So, do you have a plan for how to be more generous in the new year? That's the cure. See, Mary came, uh, this, this little bitty girl, this young child, and declared war on pride and power and greed. And the baby already in her womb emerged and picked up the gauntlet that she'd thrown down. And Jesus defeated those forces. That's what his life was about. And yet he won, ironically, by losing See, Jesus was the one man on earth who would have been justified in boasting. He's the one man who, if Jesus would have beat his chest and bragged, nobody could have told him he was wrong. And yet he never did that. He allowed himself instead to sink to the bottom. A newborn baby born in a backwater to, to poor parents. And then as one identified with the lowest of the low, a friend of sinners. Jesus wasn't worried about his reputation. He also was the one who possessed all power. Jesus could have won any fight. But he allowed weak and stupid men to capture him and beat him and mock him and nail him to a cross. He was the one who owned all things. The cattle on a thousand hills were his. But he who was rich became poor for our sake so that we through his riches, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus won because every time one of us comes to him, every time one of us comes to our crucified Savior and we lay down our pride and we lay down our power and we lay down our desire for more and we just say, Lord, it's not about that. I want to serve you. I want to know you. I want to obey you. He cures us and makes us new. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. And one day, according to the words of Paul, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess 
that Jesus is Lord. And that includes every boastful rock star and athlete you can name, every, every rich fat cat, every evil ruler. They all will bow before him. And what a day that's going to be. Can you picture it? Can you picture Jesus, this, this man who came and did so much for us and gave his life for us, and suddenly all the universe bows before him? What a day that's going to be. We can rejoice in that. That is our hope. That is what will happen. And we'll be in that crowd bowing before him as well. And that, that is the God we worship. The God who overthrows all the things that trample on us and that beat us into the wrong direction and that ruin our lives and steal our joy. We praise him, our, our, our once and future king.